Bibles and want to turn to Mark chapter 10. There's a story told of a rich man. I don't know if this is true or if it's a a preacher story, right? I mean, we've all heard those. But a rich man stood up one Sunday, uh, one Sunday evening in church to talk about how God had blessed him in amazing ways. He said that when he was young, he was sitting in the church after getting his first paycheck from his first job, and it wasn't a very big check at all. But the offering plate was being passed, and he said this small voice inside of him just said, give it all to God. And so at first he didn't want to, obviously, but finally he gave in, and he signed his paycheck over to the church. And he said that from that point on, the Lord blessed him immeasurably. He had become a very, very wealthy man. When he was done with his testimony, he sat down and a dear old lady behind him leaned forward and said, I dare you to do it again. (laughs) I dare you to do it again. Mark continues in this section, really 831 to 1052, with the teaching of Jesus to his hard-hearted, increasingly spiritually blind disciples about what it truly means to follow him. The Pharisees have just tried once again to trap Jesus, this time with the law concerning marriage and divorce, but he saw through their attempt and perfectly proclaimed God's truth to them. The next scene here opens with Jesus once again ministering to children, picking the theme back up from 933 to 50 about how in Jesus alone, remember, resides true greatness because Jesus became the last of all and the servant of all to save sinners. And so in the kindness that we're seeing here. It's no just mere narrative thing that we see it twice here in this section. In the kindness of Jesus to children, in His willingness to receive them, He demonstrated what the heart of one must be like to receive Him. That's what we're seeing in children. In our our passage this morning, He picks back up on this theme, but He takes it even further for the sake of His disciples. The kingdom of God belongs to those who come to God empty and with childlike faith. The kingdom of God is made up of those who are lowly and dependent on Him. So what Jesus also reveals here is that power and riches present insurmountable obstacles to those wanting to enter His kingdom. Everything we trust to purchase our own salvation must be set aside. Everything. Jesus interacted graciously with a group of children and a young man who wanted to draw near to him and reveal to his disciples in both scenes that the kingdom of God cannot be entered by those who would trust themselves to be able to. Because it is impossible to enter the kingdom of God on our own. We must realize that we are so spiritually impoverished that we can only approach God like a helpless child begging at the gate of the kingdom. So let's pray and we'll begin. Father, I ask for the presence, the power, and the filling of your Holy Spirit to rest upon me for the sake of your word, your name, your son, your gospel, and your people, and all those you mean to draw to yourself. Please be with me as I speak. Watch over all who hear. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We pick up Mark 10 and verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them laying his hands on them. It will help us to remember something important here again this morning about this culture. Children were generally considered to be without any social status whatsoever. That's why the disciples are rebuking these children, possibly their parents who were bringing them in verse 13. But what's really amazing here is the fact that the disciples are still acting like this after what Jesus had just told them in 9:33 to 42 about welcoming children and not causing his little ones to stumble how could they still not be getting that lesson but it really isn't that amazing at all if we remember what we've seen in the last few chapters of Mark the disciples have been consistently portrayed as prideful 
hard-hearted to spiritual truth, slow or hesitant to learn. And Jesus here now makes explicit what he implied back in 937. The way in which children receive the kingdom is the only way it can be received at all. So there's something about how these children are acting towards Jesus that displays how the heart of one must be to come to Jesus. And for the disciples rebuking them, Jesus is indignant with them in verse 14. He's furious here. They were limiting access to him, particularly of little children. Here, receiving the kingdom is likened to receiving Jesus. They're one and the same. What is it exactly about how a child would receive the kingdom that displays how anyone must receive the kingdom? The answer is in verse 16. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Children just let Jesus lay his hands on them. They just wanted his blessing as though they're just thrilled to be close to him. That's how children are. Just like Mary in Luke's gospel who sat and listened at the feet of Jesus. And he said of her that she had chosen the good portion. All these children do is long for his embrace and long for just his touch. Just that. Just his blessing. And in verse 15, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. In this section, receiving the kingdom of God also signifies having eternal life. It means salvation. The fact that the kingdom of God belongs to those who are childlike in their faith, by the way, does not refer to how children are generally innocent or gentle or pure. Remember, children were not thought of in that way in this time, in this culture. Not like they are today in 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 most places. Children are viewed as small and therefore insignificant and needy and again without any social status whatsoever. Children were completely dependent on the goodness of another. That, that beloved, is what makes childlike faith the only kind of faith that can gain us entrance to the kingdom, to eternal life. It is an utterly impoverished faith. It brings nothing with it other than the belief that Jesus will save, other than the desire to have His touch. The phrase at the end of verse 14 captures the essence of salvation and the gospel to receive the kingdom like a child means receiving it by faith with complete dependence on God. Jesus welcomes children here to illustrate that this is what the ones who are equal participants in His kingdom are like. Hold me, bless me, let me get close to you. Jesus demonstrates his point by welcoming and blessing those whom not only the world we need to see would not consider worthy of his time and attention, but neither would even his own disciples. And the tragic irony here is this. His disciples, in their rebuke of these children or their parents, see themselves as serving Jesus here. They think they are in the right. They're protecting their Lord, right? They're protecting him by preventing these distracting nobodies access to him and from wasting his time, right? They're protecting him. They're protecting their Lord. What a horrible thing it is when the church thinks their job is to protect Jesus from disrespect and dishonor. And from distracting nobodies. They knew who Jesus was. That's what kicked off this section. Don't ever forget that. You are the Christ. The son of the living God. They knew who Jesus was. That's not where they were falling short. They knew who he was. In that sense, they're solid in their doctrine. But they are utterly failing to recognize his mission and his purpose. In contrast to the children... Or the parents of these children who just want the blessing of Jesus. Just touch my child. That's all I want. Just your hands on them. Bless them. Instead of that, they are acting, the disciples, in pride and with superiority. Just as they had done back in 928 with a man that was not a part of them. Presuming to cast out demons in Jesus' name like they were instructed to do. But in their rejection of such ones as these children, they're actually rejecting Jesus. 
They're failing to comprehend the very nature and power of the gospel in the act of saying to these kids, no, 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 don't, don't get near him, right? Don't, don't get close to him. He doesn't have time for this. Jesus has not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Is that how we set up church? So it's the, the, the sinners who feel called by Christ, not the righteous, right? Repentance is giving up all claims to self. All attempts at justifying ourselves and pleading at His feet instead for forgiveness. And in their treatment of these children that just want to get close to Jesus, they are demonstrating. They are demonstrating. The indignancy of of, of Jesus reveals this. They are demonstrating, while thinking they are doing Him a great service, that they would never believe they needed to be like a child. They never needed to get close to Jesus. Apparently, they were allowed to. These insignificant children were not. Beloved, is the church of Jesus Christ in America today guilty of this? Is this something we're doing that we don't realize we're doing? Are we guilty of this here? Are we? In Moundsville, in the Ohio Valley. How do we look at people whom it is evident their need for Jesus Right? How do we look at them? How do we look at the poor? How do we look at the criminally minded? How do we look at drug abusers? How do we look at alcoholics? How do we look at people? What's our sense of them when we hear them talk or cuss or, you know, all these kinds of, how, how do we look at those who are in such horrible need? Do we make it too hard for those as spiritually desperate as first century children were physically? to come and be a part of our church here. How hard do we make it for them? Are those whom Jesus thinks of as children spiritually, are those whom He thinks of like this, are they not welcome here because we think protecting Jesus from being disrespected or from wasting His time, right? Do, Do we inadvertently keep people away Because we don't want Jesus to be disrespected. We don't want his time to be wasted. We don't want those people among us. I I wonder sometimes, I really do, if there are people searching for the truth that are hungry to have their heart healed, are there people that won't come to church because they don't feel like they have nice enough clothes? Right? I'm not going to be wearing shorts and a t-shirt up here. That's not what I mean. But I mean, have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about just how inadvertently they think, well, I can't go to church. I don't have any nice clothes. You heard anybody say that? I don't have I don't have nice clothes. I... Surely nobody thinks that, Tony. We, we we do this because we're showing respect for God. God didn't ask us to define respect by our clothing when we come to the gathered church of God. Gathering in this place with the people of God, it's not about us. It's not about what we're bringing. It's about Jesus and what He has already done. Jesus was indignant when children were prevented from coming to Him in the name of protection and dignity and respect. Beloved, the world needs to know that we, you and I, we are panhandlers on the streets of God's kingdom. That's who we are. We're benefiting from God's welfare. That's who we are. We're begging to receive mercy. If we get in the way of that by anything that we consider to be important or worshipful that God does not, then we, like the disciples, are completely misunderstanding His mission and His purpose and therefore the very essence and nature of the gospel. And so the point of these few verses as we transition now to Jesus' meeting with the rich young man is the need to be like a child. That's the context here. Remember that. The need to be like a child that is fully dependent on God, fully dependent on God to enter the kingdom of God. But also recognize that the level of our dependence on God's benevolence will not be demonstrated by the things we say. They will be demonstrated, it will be demonstrated often by how we treat those who represent physically, visibly what we all are spiritually. By how we treat those that desperately need to get close to Jesus, regardless of their status. 
That's the issue that drives the meaning of this next section for us, where this rich man must give up his love for, his dependence on earthly possessions as the means of inheriting the kingdom of God. We hold views that make us want to keep out those we deem unworthy because we think worthiness is attainable on our own. We look at people and say, you could do what I do. You could act towards God like I act towards God. You ought to be like this. You ought to be like that. I am. You can do it. Right? We don't want people that aren't serious like we are about God to get close to God. They don't deserve it. This may be what rests in our hearts towards other people. And so, as always, the church, the disciples of Jesus, those who follow him, need the gospel. We pick it up in verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Verse 17 reminds us that Jesus is still unflinchingly, unflinchingly headed towards Jerusalem to be crucified. But on his way, a man ran up and knelt before him. These are usually the actions of a servant or of a slave, which makes the scene start out very positively, right? This man recognizes that he needs to get to Jesus and that he must defer to him. These are very good signs. In other words, there are no false motives here. As verse 21 will show, he's not been sent by the Pharisees to set a trap. His question is sincere. He is sincere. But that doesn't make his question any less off base. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And again, I know his question is sincere. The language with which Mark relates this story lets us know, look, look at this man. This is his story. It's relative to him and to his question and how he asked it. But beloved, here's the thing. A child asks, what can you do for me? What can you give me? A child does not ask, what must I do? A child is far too needy to presume, and so must beg, and does so unashamedly with no grasp of decorum. If, if, if a child wants what you are holding, particularly a small child, they'll come and take it. They don't ask. They're not asking permission. They're just, they want it. They have to have it. They take it. Children have no delusions about what they can do for us. They often don't even say thank you when we feed them, right? Like, yeah, I, I can't cook, right? Yes, I, yes, give me the food. Yeah, you're, I eat because of you. Where's my, where's my dinner? Where's my snack? Look at how he addresses Jesus very respectfully, by the way, very respectfully. But the phrase good teacher, this is completely foreign to Judaism or to the dialogue of that time and addressing a rabbi or a teacher. It it was not a normal label by which you would refer to teachers. But it does invite the reader to stop for a minute because of Jesus' response and ask, well, what is true goodness? What makes somebody good? This young man has a certain understanding of it. We, We call him the rich young ruler because of the composite picture we get of him from the Gospels. But he has a certain understanding of what good is. That's why he calls Jesus good. But Jesus says to him in verse 18, not answering his question immediately at all, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. This is not, by the way, a Christological statement. He's, it's, it's a rhetorical one. Jesus is not saying that he isn't good. He's not saying that he isn't God in the flesh. He's preemptively challenging this man's notion of what is good. That's what he's basically asking him. What do you think good is that you would call me good teacher? Since this man is about to claim, at least in some sense, 
that is keeping of at least the second table of the Ten Commandments. Very interestingly, Jesus doesn't mention the first five, which deal with us and God. These deal with us and one another. But technically, he's done these things, he says, and he's done what is necessary to inherit eternal life as far as he knows. We know that because Jesus rushes right by his obedience in just a few verses to the source of his confidence. That's what Jesus is doing here. But in spite of that, we we need to remember, obviously, the man thinks something is lacking in himself. Something is or he wouldn't have come running to Jesus to find out what it was. He's literally wondering, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What am I missing? I feel like something's missing. I've kept the law, but something just doesn't feel right. I know there has to be something else that I can do. But rather than running to Jesus for mercy in light of that need, he came running to Jesus for the missing piece he must perform to feel certain he has inherited eternal life. Eternal life means ultimate salvation in God's presence. And again, in context here, it's synonymous with being saved, entering the kingdom of God. The idea of inheriting eternal life, as he says it, fits in with the Old Testament concept of Israel as God's own children who are heirs of his blessing. That's what this man would have been working from in his head. Inherit was a word often used in the Old Testament for the idea of entering the promised land. But he realizes that inheriting it is not a given. It's not a given. That's that's very good of him to realize. But instead of requesting grace, he wonders what he must do. What am I not doing in order to inherit it? For himself, I think it's important to note here, this isn't really a faith versus works question like we read about so much in Paul. This is this man's love for his riches over his love for God is the ultimate evidence that his trust is in what he has rather than in humble dependence on God. This is the perfect object lesson for the confused disciples of Jesus. The man came humbly. He defers to Jesus. He has kept on some level at least much of the law. How many Jewish people would have been much like this man? But he still doesn't recognize his need for Jesus to save him. What is clear that this man thinks about Jesus is this is a good teacher. If there's something I'm not doing to inherit eternal life, he can tell me the answer. This is not who Jesus is. This is not what Jesus does. He's not come to fill in the last missing piece of our salvation. He has come to be our salvation completely. That's what this man lacks. And in lacking that, he lacks everything. In spite of his obedience, in spite of his sincerity here. Jesus asked him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Because Jesus is challenging This man's superficial understanding of true goodness. You come from the framework that says Jesus, we can imply here, or maybe this is what he's thinking. You come from the framework that says by being good, I am good. By being good, I am good. But the man also wants to inherit eternal life. He doesn't just want to be good. For that to happen, beloved, he will have to have goodness redefined for him. And only Jesus can do that. How important is it for us to realize that none is good but God? And if only He is good, then only He can define good. Only Jesus can define good. He's trying to tell this man, trying to tell His disciples, trying to tell us what grants us eternal life. We must Listen, it's, it's not what we think. We must stop judging other people then even based on our own definitions of goodness or it will harden our heart to those in need. And if that is happening, it's not just a horizontal thing we're missing. There's something in us that clearly doesn't grasp the gospel. And it may be extremely concerning because it may reveal, beloved, We haven't entered the kingdom at all. 
Jesus wants to convince this man that no one can merit God's salvation. Good is measured only in comparison to God, which means from God's perspective, no one is good. The best human being that ever lived compared to Jesus, please. So Jesus' response in verse 18 is the same method he used with the Syrophoenician woman to give what seems like this naive answer to provoke deeper thinking. In verse 19, you know the commandments. Now we already know that you don't inherit the kingdom of God by obeying the commandments, but Jesus is working this man. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. He, he names all the ones you could pull off. Right? Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Again, it's the second, only the second table of the Ten Commandments. The ones related exclusively to how people treat one another. Even unbelievers can keep those. Even unbelievers with, with no thought whatsoever for God. In a sense, right? Look verse 20. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now listen. There's no reason to doubt him here. Jesus doesn't. But we can presume that this man has not heard the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't know that he must not only refrain from committing adultery. He can't even look at a woman with lust. He must not only refrain from murder. He can't even hate someone or he's murdered them already in his heart. He must be perfect as his heavenly father is perfect. But in his mind, he's probably breathing a sigh of relief as this good teacher lists off these commandments that he's been keeping since he was about 12 years old. Right? I'm good. I've kept those. Okay. So that, that's it. I, I've, I've kept those. So now, this man believes, okay, I'm good. I'm good. I, that's what I was wondering, good teacher. Thank you. Right? So in light of the Sermon on the Mount, you, you might expect Jesus to say here to him, you, you, you mean well, but I guarantee you, you, you've broken one of those at least today. Right? In your heart let alone since you were about 12, but he doesn't say that. Why not? Because it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter if he had or had not. Obedience to the law will not gain us eternal life. Look at verse 21. And Jesus looking at him, that's important, that's twice in this passage, loved him, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Again, this is not a trap. The man is sincere. And only in Mark is it recorded that Jesus looked at him and loved him. In other words, Jesus Christ loves children that don't know their children. He loves people that are thoroughly lost. There's hope here. Jesus does not correct him. He doesn't deny his claim. You lack one thing. One thing? That's all. How righteous is this young man? You lack one thing? Instead, Jesus gives him four more imperatives that really express one command. You lack one thing. Give up your whole life on earth and come follow me and you'll have more treasure in heaven than you can carry. He goes right after what this man looked to as the evidence that he was on the right track. Right? Verse 19 made the man think he has eternal life because he's kept the commandments. Jesus knows that. So he lacks one thing, and in lacking that one thing, he lacks everything. Jesus, Jesus will get to the heart. Right? He'll break the man down so that he realizes he has nothing. He has nothing. Looking straight into his heart. He goes right after it. Right after to what this man looked to as the evidence that he was on the right track. His obedience, yes, but his wealth. This is what he loved. To love something is to believe you need it. Right? I can't live without it. Children in verses 13 through 16 are the model of what it looks like, though, when the only thing we need is Jesus. Just get me close to him. Just have him bless me. Right? Rather than the other way around. I'm not, a child doesn't go to God and say, look what I've done for you. Look what I've earned. Look how hard I've worked. 
Look how pure I've been. A child comes to Jesus and says, can I just sit on your lap? Can I just get close to you? Will you please bless me? Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 7.10 that godly sorrow produces repentance. We don't know what happened with this man. There are even, I've read in more than one commentary that it, there are people that think this was Mark before he was converted. I, we can't say, but as of this moment at least, he walks away, he doesn't repent. He leaves sad, he leaves disheartened, for he had great possessions in every way. Beloved, don't miss the wordplay. In every way, he had great possessions. Wealth, obedience, purity, commitment. I have to give all of that away? You want me to give away my righteousness? You want me to give away what I would point to and say, look, God is blessing me. He had wealth. Yeah, he also had belief that his obedience would help him get eternal life. Unless we see ourselves as empty, without status, having nothing, unless we think of ourselves as helpless children, listen, we will not enter the kingdom. Let the words of Jesus do their work. We will not enter the kingdom unless we think of ourselves as helpless children. We'll hang our heads when Jesus reveals that, look, from start to finish, I'm the only one that can save you. You can do nothing of your own accord to earn it. We'll get tired of hearing about grace, grace, grace. Yeah, I get it. I get the grace. What must I do, though? What's my part? What do I do? What do I contribute? What do I give? I have these talents. I have these good intentions. I have this money. What do I do? Yeah, I get that I'm saved by, yeah, I understand that. That's great. Wonderful. What do I, what do I do? What do I do? It may be that we even lack just one thing. Just one thing. We might be that good of a person. I'm not being facetious or patronizing. We might be a very, very good person. We might like lack one thing. How do we know that this man's problem was that there was something about how he viewed his wealth that kept him from accepting Jesus' offer in verse 21? Beloved, Jesus goes right to his lack. He goes to what should be the childlike part of him. He goes to the one thing the man didn't have. The way in which this man is like a child having nothing. Again, his request was not to be saved. His request was for instructions to save himself. So Jesus reveals to him that even his best righteousness, so you've obeyed it, wonderful. You you still haven't inherited eternal life. You're still lacking. Beloved, just like the hand wrote on the wall in front of Belteshazzar, you have been weighed, we have been measured, we have been found wanting. Wanting, lacking. But... Jesus loved him. He needed to become empty and give up all his status, but he couldn't do that. Right? Wealth is often considered a blessing, either from God or a blessing from the universe because you've done so well and worked so hard. It was an obvious blessing in the Old Testament. Texts all throughout the Old Testament that riches and wealth would be a blessing from God, but now Christ has come. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand now. Mark 1. Riches and wealth now in the kingdom are mainly an obstacle to seeing our need for Christ clearly, just as they were to this man. Wealth tends to elicit a sense of accomplishment. Again, paper money is not the root of all kinds of evils. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. But wealth, when you have it, it tends to elicit a sense of accomplishment, a sense of confidence. It's amazing how very, very wealthy people see the world so differently than we do. I had a boss, I, I, I know I've shared this before, I just don't know if I've said it here on a Sunday morning, but I had a boss, I was the executive assistant of the 
corporate tax department of the limited brands for several years when I was not in ministry, not vocationally. And FedEx has a, they do not deliver to P.O. boxes. You cannot deliver a FedEx package to a P.O. box. At least you couldn't at the time. And as far as I know, they, they still, it's, in other words, they just, they don't do it. If, if you address, the label won't even let you print it if you put a P.O. box on it. But let's say you wrote it in, they won't deliver it, right? My boss, Todd, he's the senior vice president of tax. I love Todd, a great guy. I'm not talking down about him, but Todd was very wealthy, very wealthy. He says to me, they always call me Antonio, That's which I love that. That's my name. But he says, Antonio, he comes out. He says, I need you to FedEx this for me. Like, okay. He's like, it goes to a P.O. box. It's on the paper. I said, oh, Todd, they won't, they won't deliver it. He said, yeah, they will. There's no, they won't. FedEx doesn't deliver to P.O. box. He said, yeah, they do. They will. Just send it. Like, no, Todd, they, they, I'm telling you, they won't. He's like, what are you talking about? Print the label. Send the package. It was unfathomable to Todd that FedEx would not do this thing. Why? Because Todd is not used to people saying to him, yeah, I can't do that for you. Baloney, here's the cash. Do it for me. Get it done. I want this. I want that. Right? That's a microcosm of what it might be like to have a serious amount of wealth. Like people always talk about money. I think I've said money doesn't buy happiness. Okay. Right. I mean, have you ever have you like like people that say that have never had to struggle paying their electric bill? Right. I mean, that's a whole different level of of money. Like, I don't know if we're going to be able to pay our bills this month. Not like, oh, man, we can't go to the Caymans this month. It's a totally different world. Wealth just again, not everybody that has wealthy or that has wealth is gained it sinfully or is sinning, nor is it a sin to have wealth. We simply need to realize something. Wealth in our minds becomes an impediment to entering the kingdom. And to hear Jesus describe it, we need to let the word sweep over us because Jesus says, look, it makes it downright impossible. Why? That's what this story is doing. Why does wealth present this insurmountable obstacle to entering the kingdom of God? So he goes away, right? Wealth tends to elicit a sense of accomplishment. He goes away. Why? Because he had great possessions. This man could not give up what he was holding on to. Why not? He was willing to give to God. That's clear when he comes to Jesus. He was not willing to receive from God, which is what he would need to do if he gives up everything he is clinging to. He would give to God. I cannot receive from God. I can't do that. Again, he's the opposite of a child in this context. He's the picture of the opposite of what Jesus just said in 13 through 16. Jesus says to him, I, you lack one thing. Give up what you would presume to pay me with. Give up your wealth. Give up your obedience. Give up your claim to self. Give up what you would presume to pay me with. Right? Why? Children can't foot anybody's bill. When the check comes at a restaurant, I'm not looking at little Gianna. Hey, right? She, she doesn't have a job. Her money is my money, right? Kids, I know you're in here somewhere. Your money is my money, right? It's my money. <laughs> he had trusted in his wealth as a symbol of God's blessing on his life. He's disheartened due to his great possessions because they were the means by which he was sure he was on the right track to obtain eternal life. He's just got all kinds of goodness to depend on. That's why Jesus makes the transition here out of nowhere from his obedience to his possessions. That's verse 21 is not in the law. It's not a law of Moses. They didn't even know that he lacked this, right? That's what I must do to inherit eternal life that I'm not interested if by inheriting you mean do well enough to merit an inheritance, great. But if you mean giving it all up so that you sign my name on the dotted line, that I'll get it all, no. I, I, I work for what I get. I work for my way. Jesus is telling him the only treasure worth anything cannot be found in the earth. It can be earned. It can only be received. We consider prosperity a blessing and an advantage, but we, we is it? In light of Jesus' words, at least not all the time. And 
don't even go to that qualification in your head right now. Just let the word of Jesus sit. This is an insurmountable obstacle to inheriting the kingdom. Jesus is not teaching, notice this, that asceticism, radical self-denial is what saves a person, right? He's not telling him, look, you can be saved by giving up everything that you have and following me. He's answering this man's point of need. He's going after why this man won't follow him. Like Paul instructs all of us to be able to do in Colossians 4, Jesus knew how to answer each person with the gospel as they needed to hear it. The level of trust in God that is necessary to inherit eternal life then is beyond what we can work up. We're all relegated to being statusless children here. And there's something about love of riches and trust in them that again presents what Jesus describes as an insurmountable obstacle to inheriting the kingdom. Why? How do we know this is the issue here? Because of how Jesus has spoken of how you may or can enter the kingdom. That's what's at issue here. How does one enter the kingdom? To enter the kingdom of God is to trust God completely with all of our hope for salvation from the beginning to the end of the Christian life. We're never going to be too big to sit on Jesus' lap. Ever. That's what Jesus is going after here. You will never get so big that you don't need me holding you and blessing you and giving you everything. Ever. You're never going to outgrow this. You must be a child. We can bring nothing of ourselves into this. Grace can be partnered to nothing. No one can enter the kingdom on their own merit. We all must enter with childlike faith and in complete dependence on God. This is what Jesus teaches now to his disciples. Pick it up in verse 23. And Jesus looked around. Notice that there it is again. And said to his disciples how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Full stop. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children... How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. What would a child do if you told them that? About yourself. Look, all things are possible with me. You know what a kid would say? Oh man, can you build me a castle? And can you put candy in all the rooms? And just all the toys? Right? It's, it's, it, if, if you said that to a child, you have made their day, their week, their life. Right? What was it the children most certainly did not have? In the time and culture of Jesus, wealth. Jesus keeps using children as his example to teach about inheriting eternal life because they have nothing. Because they were utterly dependent. He just keeps showing his disciples, you need to become like children. And you misunderstand this so badly that when literal children try to come to me, you try to prevent them. You don't get it. By linking the teaching about children in the kingdom directly with a rich young man who couldn't give up his possessions. Mark shows us the two are meant to be understood together. This is one lesson here. The fact that it is difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God is such a shocking thing to the disciples. Right? That lets you know how central to their mindset the thinking was that by wealth you knew you had God's blessing, God's approval. Because when Jesus says this, they are completely amazed. In verse 24, they're exceedingly astonished in verse 26. Why? Well, because they knew texts like Proverbs 10, 22, the blessing of the Lord brings wealth. Wealth may be a sign of God's blessing, but not always, which very quickly, that's one of the reasons why you don't read the Proverbs as absolutes. They're not absolutes. They will break your heart if you read them like that. When your child goes astray and you think, train up a child in the way he should go, he won't depart from it. That's not an absolute. Stop doing that to yourself. Clearly, 
we're meant to understand them in light of Jesus, not in light of like, this is an awesome 31 chapters of chicken soup for the soul right in the middle of the Bible. So we have ladies going to Proverbs 31. I need to be a Proverbs 31 woman. Are you married to a king? No. No. You're not a queen. Sorry, ladies. Unless you're a queen, you're not a queen. Right? So stop doing this to yourselves. Stop. Wealth is not always a blessing, especially now that Jesus has come and brought His kingdom where everything is upside down. Everything. But hear the compassion of Jesus for his little flock here in verse 24. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. How he loves you and me, beloved. We are not insignificant to Jesus. That's not how we're like children. We're hopeless without Jesus. That's how we're like children. We can't enter the kingdom of God. It cannot be done. We do not have the resources. And riches and wealth, maybe more than anything else, will deceive us to think that we do. Again, the rich generally think that anything can be bought. You can overcome standing rules and laws if you have the money. That's where real privilege is in the world. Wealth. So Jesus must be offering something. When when the wealthy here, they're thinking, Jesus is all I can. I can buy it. I can get it. Tell me how much it costs. What must I do? Tell me. I've got it. Just tell me and I'll do it. I'll pay it. But Jesus goes to the absurd in verse 25 just to prove how impossible that is. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to inherit the kingdom of God. By the way, despite the legend, there's no evidence, zero that there was a special gate in the wall of Jerusalem called the needle's eye. And you could pass through it if you unloaded your camel and you stooped the camel down really low. So the first suggestion of, of that gate shows up in the 11th century, like over a thousand years past the time of Jesus. This is not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying if you do the right things, you can fit through. Right? It's not... What he's saying, if you unload your camel and bend down really low, Jesus is not asking us to bend down really low. He's asking us, he's telling us to die. Give up your adulthood, become like a child, then you'll fit. Right? In one sense, this is hyperbolic because it's meant to shock us with its absurdity, right? The way it sounds. You read that and you say, well, that camel can't, that's impossible. Exactly. That's what he's saying. So in that sense, it's not hyperbole. He's saying exactly what he means. It's impossible. It's not hard. It's impossible. We, we try to, you know, there's a gate called the needle's eye. Why? Because you, you just, you have to lessen the words of Jesus so that you can make this about a level of commitment, not about what's at issue in the text, eternal life, period. This isn't a text about your commitment level to Jesus and what you're willing to give up. That's not what it's about. It's about needing him. To gain eternal life. To enter the kingdom. That's what's at issue here. That's what's at issue here. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless God himself intervenes to do the impossible. That's the point. The words can't be softened here. Jesus is not just saying, don't worship riches and then you can enter the kingdom. Because then you know what you have to do? You can be as wealthy, as much of a billionaire as you want and just say, I don't worship my money. Oh, good, you're in. Right? I don't worship it. We cannot enter. Riches are not the only impediment to entering the kingdom. That's his point. It's, it's how we view these things. How we depend on these things. How they make us the opposite of a child in our thinking. The most fundamental issue for every human being that has ever existed is the context here. Not a certain level of commitment to God, but eternal life. How can one enter the kingdom of God, period? Jesus says it's impossible in verse 15. And listen to them in verse 26. Jesus said, if a man who has apparently kept the commandments his whole life and has been blessed with great riches can't be saved, then who can? Right, they're, they're, they're thinking of wealth is so high that they're like, wait a minute, if the wealthy can't get in, who can? You see that? Verse 27, Jesus looked at them. It's there again. Right? That, that's not a literary detail. It, Peter remembered. Remember, Peter was talking to Mark. Mark's writing this down. Peter remembered Jesus' look when he said this to them. He remembered his face. He was there. 
when Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. So the most impossible thing for human beings to accomplish is nothing for God to accomplish. We're going to have to accept God's welfare that is funded by Jesus in order to enter the kingdom. Humanly speaking, no one can be saved. Divinely speaking, a camel can go through the eye of a needle. There is a way to enter the kingdom of God, but we can't do it, not even the best of us. It's impossible. So I'm going to shut it down here in just a minute. What should, in light of that, in light of verse 27 and all that has preceded it, preceded it, what should the disciples do here? Jesus has extended the open hand of invitation. Take it, right? Take it. Turn into little children. Okay, then save me. Do it. Bless me. Jesus, take me in your arms. Deliver me. Do what is impossible. What does Peter say in verse 28? We have left everything and followed you. No, Peter, no, don't. Now you're doing what the guy just did. Jesus says, you can't do this. It's impossible. What does Peter say? We left everything and followed you. So we're in, right? We're, we look at us. We, I left a fishing business to follow you. We're in, right? We've left everything. So we've left more than the average person would leave. We've left everything. He's making the same mistake the rich young man did. And you'll find in verse 31 that most people who depend on their riches and what they bring to the table will be last. They won't enter the kingdom. Look at what we've done. Look at what we have as evidence. Again, they weren't, still weren't fully grasping the depth of their need for Jesus to save them, to give them eternal life from His grace, not as payment for their sacrifices. They trusted in their giving up of things as much as the rich man had trusted in his wealth. Notice that Jesus also doesn't correct them in 28 to 31. Because in a sense, they are the antithesis of the rich young man. That's deliberate here. Peter is telling the truth. In some sense, they've given up everything to follow him. Why are they not saved yet? Or at least, why are they not okay? Why do they still lack? Because they trust in that giving up as the means of their acceptance from God. Their giving up was their riches. Do you see that? This guy just had literal riches. It was an object lesson, and they didn't see it. Jesus gives this great statement in 28 to 31 that, look, yeah, I know that you've lost, but you're going to get more than you can possibly imagine, not just in the age to come. You'll get more here. How? If I give it, you get this family. We're one with one another. You get this family. You also get persecutions here, right? But not in the age to come. In the age to come, you will have what Jesus says you will have, eternal life. Jesus is just saying in 28 to 31, look, you need to look away from everything. You need to look away from everything. So if something has happened in our minds that makes it so we can't see our need, we have to identify it. Beloved, because it is impossible to enter the kingdom of God on our own, we must realize that we are spiritually impoverished, that we can only approach God as a helpless child, begging at the gate of the kingdom. We need His mercy to come to us by His grace, but we have no hope of buying it or earning it. None. We must realize this, not just for our own entering of the kingdom, But one good way to know whether or not we believe this is to look at how we feel about people we deem unworthy of getting close to Jesus. 